Now I want you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Nathan, come up here. Nathan Smith is going to read the Word of God, and Andrew Bach is going to lead us in prayer. So you remain standing as Nathan leads us in the reading of the Word of God. Matthew 16, I mean Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Bow our heads. Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful day, and thank you that there are so many people that want to learn about your word. But Lord, you know that there are many people out there that haven't gotten the chance to learn about your word. Please help us all to be a witness to those people, and please let's have a wonderful week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Join me in saying amen to young men and young women who are doing this each week. Isn't this terrific? Say amen to them. Didn't they do good? That, this is hope for tomorrow, friends. There's a lot out there that doesn't generate much hope about what's happening in the world, but this produces hope. Y'all did wonderful, did great. You all sit down. Bless you. Look at the back of your bulletin for a few moments, would you please? I did something that I want you to have for the week. I wrote there in summary form the events of each day, beginning today, in the life of Jesus, in the week that changed the world. Had it not been for that week, we wouldn't be here today. Had it not been for that week, we would have no New Testament. Without that week, Jesus would have been a mere footnote in some Jewish history book. This is the week that changed the world began on Sunday, and it's, interestingly enough, as I say there, 40% of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, take them together, nearly half of those four Gospels deals with this last week. So naturally, I have had to leave out a lot of detail and a lot of Scripture. What I'd like you to do is each day of the week, on Monday, to read that Scripture or one parallel Scripture to the events that occurred on Sunday or on Monday or on Tuesday, and then Wednesday as table conversation, each of you tell what you think Jesus did on Wednesday, that day before the storm. Who was he with? What did he do? Where did he go? We don't know from the scripture. And then Thursday, then Friday, Saturday in the tomb, and next Sunday, Easter, the week that changed the world. In a sense, it began just a few hours before the Passover or the triumphal entry in Jericho, the city of Jericho. For it was there that Jesus was walking down the street and a hated, tested, abhorred Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a man that everybody in the town feared and abhorred, wanted to see Jesus. He'd ripped everybody off. He cheated people. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. 
But he wanted to know Jesus, or at least wanted to see him, so he climbed a tree. And Jesus walked along, and to the amazement of the crowd, Jesus invited Zacchaeus to come down out of the tree and say, I want to go home and have lunch at your house today. He became an, a self-invited participant in the home of the most notorious sinner in Jericho. Well, everybody sat outside wondering what was going on inside. We don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. But in a little while, Zacchaeus came out saying, my life's changed. If I've cheated you, I'm going to return it fourfold. He just started throwing money around everywhere. He said, if I've done anything wrong to any of you, I apologize. And I don't just apologize. I make tangible, physical amends for what I have done. The people were amazed and astounded. They were also amazed that Jesus would have dinner with such a notorious sinner as Zacchaeus. And Jesus made this wonderful statement. He said, the Son of Man. Now that is a phrase, an Old Testament phrase, a messianic phrase. Jesus was in a sense saying that he is the Son of Man. That means he is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God incarnate. He says the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Don't you understand? That's why I've come. I've come to seek and to save the lost ones. And some are just apparently more lost than others. But all are lost, as the Scripture said. What does it mean to be lost? Does it mean that you're some heinous, despicable criminal? No, it just means you may be out of place as far as relationship to God is concerned. If I were to lose these glasses, it doesn't mean that they are annihilated or that the glasses are bad or evil. It's just that they're out of place. They're not fulfilling their function in life. So what Jesus came to do was to certainly to save our souls, that eternal part of us that will live forever. But he came to do more than that. He came not only to save the eternal part of us, he came to do something with the temporal part of us. He came to restore families and self-respect and relationships. He came to save reputations. He came to save hope for the hopeless. He came to save everything about life that's not working. He came, as Paul later said, to hold everything together. In Christ does everything consist. I've come, he said, to seek and save everything about life that needs to be renewed or restored or remade or rejoined. He left Jericho and headed up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem, stopped in Bethany, spent the night, and the next day was today, Palm Sunday. And in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he got on a donkey and he rode into the city of Jerusalem. It is estimated that at this season of the feast, there would be over two million people in Jerusalem. Think of that. Over two million pilgrims were there, and Jesus came riding over the Mount of Olives from Jericho, I mean, uh, from Bethany, Jericho up to Bethany, Bethany across, and he came riding down the street, the road leading to the city of Jerusalem, and the crowd went wild. You'll catch something of that spirit tonight. 
and celebrate life. The crowd was cheering, waving palm branches. Oh, they wanted him for their king. They wanted a king that was going to run the Romans out. They wanted a king that was going to restore the glory of Israel. They wanted a political Messiah that would enshrine the Jews as the people of God and the rulers of the world. That's the kind of king they wanted. Well, they thought, here's a man who can feed multitudes. Why, you don't have to have supply lines if you go into combat. He can just multiply loaves and fishes and feed everybody out there on the field. If people get wounded, why, he can heal people. He can heal the wounded. If somebody gets killed in battle, he can raise them up. I mean, we've got everything we need here to establish a political kingdom. We can beat Caesar. And so they yelled, God has given us a king. 19th chapter of Luke, 18th verse, 38th verse, excuse me. God has given us a king, they exalted. Long live the king. Let all heaven rejoice. Glory to God in the highest heaven. He's a king. Look at him. Get him off that donkey. Put him in a stretch limousine. Get him off that donkey. Put him on a white horse. He doesn't look like a king on a donkey. Lowly animal. Jesus had an affinity for donkeys. I guess his mother told him about them. She was walking along in the crowd, reminiscing, no doubt. I remember 33 years ago we came through town on a donkey, he in my womb, and we went south a few miles to Bethlehem, and he was born, and he's back on a donkey. They wanted a king, a political king. He came, a carpenter on a donkey. What kind of king is that? And Jesus saw they were not getting his message. I want you to notice his reaction to all of this acclaim. But as they came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to what? He began to cry. He began to cry. And he said, eternal peace was within your reach. Eternal peace. Not just the Pax Romana, not just the peace of Rome, not just the peace of some political entity. I've come to give you eternal peace, and you wouldn't take it. He cried while they cheered. Eternal peace was within your reach, and you turned it down. You turned it down. Listen, he's still turning it down. And in a political year, we need to be reminded, my friend, Jesus is not a part of anybody's political ticket. He's not a political messiah, and he comes to stand in judgment upon all government, good and ordained of God, but it is not a savior. And Jesus was showing us here that government cannot save us. We're not going to elect a Savior in November. And if any present themselves as such, my friend, be careful. We could be tentatively headed toward Hitler land. 
We're going to elect not a sovereign, but a chief executive, and we need to find, hopefully, the best one in the group that can wisely manage and lead this country. But we're not going to elect the fourth member of the Godhead. Jesus turned down an invitation of the devil to be his running mate way back there in the desert. And Jesus refuses to be identified with any political party. There are Christians in the Democratic Party and Christians in the Republican Party and Christian independents, and that's where they belong. We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and the salt and light of every entity in life, including government. But my friend, there will never be everlasting peace until he comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom because he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't let us try to make it of this world. He was in a sense standing in judgment upon all government that gets to be a concentration of power that can abuse as well as help people. They wanted to make him a king. He turned around and went back to Bethany and spent the night. Well, they were getting ready to start conscripting people and set up the army to fight Rome. He walked away. Next day, he came back and threw everybody out of the sanctuary, everybody out of the temple, cleansed the temple on Monday. What was he saying by doing that? He was saying that religion cannot save you. Religion can be a marvelous vehicle for worship and praise and service. It can provide that, but it cannot provide you salvation. It can provide you with an opportunity to express your faith in praise and worship and service to others. But it cannot provide you with salvation. And he cleansed it to show its impotence at the point of the provision of life. Listen to what Isaiah says. 64th chapter of the book of Isaiah, 6th verse. We are all infected and impure with sin, all of us. We're not, we've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. We're not all Zacchaeus, but we're all lost. When we put on our prized robes of righteousness, we find they are but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we fade, wither, and fall. And our sins, like the wind, sweep us away. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The accurate, actual translation of that phrase is, our righteousness is like a menstrual cloth. Not something dirty and vile, something natural and normal. What is the message of that statement? The message of our righteousness being compared to a menstrual cloth is at this point, there, the menstrual cloth is evidence that there is no life in the womb. There's no life there. There is no life in religious systems that can give you salvation. It is when you have been born again into the kingdom of God and you become a part of the institution of his church 
you are the vehicle by which his life comes into the body of his church. It is not this brick and wood and carpet and mortar that's the church. We are the church. We've been made alive in Christ. We are the temple of God. We are the body of Christ. And the life does not come from us. It comes from him who gives us life. So religion cannot do that. It is impotent and powerless. As powerless as government. Charlemagne, who was the head of the, the emperor of the Roman, Holy Roman Empire, when he died, they set his corpse up in a coffin and put a crown on his head and a scepter in his stiffened hand. But his power was gone because his life was gone. Caesar's power is gone because his life is gone. Napoleon's power is gone because his life is gone. Jesus' power has not gone because he's not gone. He's alive. And the source of life for every phase and facet of life. He is the basis of education. On Tuesday, they came back and asked Jesus every conceivable question under, the, under heaven, just about. Question of authority, question about uh, what do you give to Caesar and what do you give to God, uh, the question about uh, resurrection, uh, question about uh, the greatest commandment, on and on and on. A great long day of controversy. Jesus was trying to teach them the truth, but what they were missing is the same thing Pilate missed. They were missing the embodiment of truth in Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Many of them were believing on him, and he turned to them and said, You're truly my disciples if you live as I tell you to, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what Cynthia sang a moment ago. But sometimes people isolate that verse of Scripture. They take it out of context and say, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, the truth that makes you free is the truth that is really that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Disciples of His who take Him as Lord and Savior and take His Word seriously, they are the ones who know the truth that sets us free. And He says later, for the Son, therefore, shall make you free indeed. Government can't save us. Religion can't save us. Education, as wonderful and helpful as it is, as is religion and government, none of them can save us apart from the personal Savior, Jesus Christ himself. He comes toward the end of the week, and I'll review just very briefly what happened to him. In some words that may describe us in this room, he came to take my place and he came to take my sin the scripture says he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ he became like us so we could become like him the Son of God became Son of Man, that sons of men might become sons of God. He took everything about life in those last hours that's destructive 
Let me run through them. Join me in the upper room for a moment. Judas, if you're going to do it, go do it. You're going to betray me, go do it. And Judas went out and betrayed him. You ever been, you ever been betrayed by a friend? You ever been betrayed? He understands that. Peter denied him. Anybody ever denied you their friendship? Oh, I don't even know him. Who's he? Went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Fellas, I'm really going through some deep water and I want you to pray for me. And he went all a little further ahead and fell on his face by himself and he began to pray. And he went back to check in with his friends whom he'd asked to pray for him and they'd all gone to sleep. Anybody ever let you down at a crucial time in your life? He understands that. He waked him up and he said, couldn't you pray with me an hour? Man, I'm going through deep waters. They went back to sleep. They arrested him and falsely accused him. You ever been falsely accused? Anybody ever said anything about you that wasn't true? He understands that. Anybody ever ridicule you? Make fun of you? He understands that. Anybody ever beat up on you? I mean literally and figuratively? They beat up on him. Literally. And figuratively. Anybody ever rig a deal to get you out of town? They worked a deal. Religion and government got together to get rid of Jesus. Anybody ever press a bunch of thorns down on you? stick you till you hurt beyond words to describe maybe not on your head but on your heart you ever feel forsaken feel forsaken Nobody cares. He knows what it is to feel forsaken even when you're not. If you feel it, the, the symptoms are the same. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
Anybody ever pierce your heart with a spear of rejection? Listen. And this is the good news. Out of the bad news. Jesus took all of the denials, all of the betrayals, all of the ridicule and rejection, all of the crosses and the thorny crowns and all the pierces of human hearts. He took all of them and put them in himself. That's what killed him. The excruciating aspect of Jesus' death was not primarily physical. Men have died more excruciating physical deaths than Jesus. He took upon him all the trash of the world. And he took it inside of himself. And he took it all the way to hell itself. He took it all the way to the grave and he buried that shroud of death there. And that's where it is today. And he came back. He's victorious. And your sins and my sins are in the grave. They're dead. They're gone because of what Jesus Christ has done and is doing. That's the powerful good news. Everything that's happened to me, he has taken and he has forgiven and he has bestowed grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Man, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. We've heard it so often we don't hear it. He took my sin. And all I have to do is accept his resurrected gift of life. And my sins are gone. They're forgiven. They're buried in the depths of the sea of God's forgetfulness. Mine. Don't postpone him. Don't tell him you'll return his call tomorrow or next week. Don't put him on hold. Don't miss an opportunity to know him who's come to give you life, not death. We deal in death. The world deals in death. He's come to deal us life. Take it. It's a gift, a free Undeserved gift.